Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, it is good to be in this place today in your presence, to be able to worship you in truth and spirit because of the work of Christ. We thank you, Father, that because of his great salvation, we are able to have fellowship with the living God. Pray, Father, that you would forgive us for our many sins. We know, Father, that we are sinful creatures. Only because of the salvation of Christ are we allowed to come into your presence. And we thank you, Father, for this great salvation that we think upon this day. We pray, Father, that as we think upon it, that you would teach us more of its greatness so that we might be motivated to go forth and tell others of what you have done for sinners in bringing them to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. We pray, Father, that we would be faithful in presenting the gospel to those that we come in contact with. We thank you, Father, for the gospel, and we pray that we might know it clearly so that we might present it to others. We pray, Father, for our sister churches this day throughout the world that as they meet together, that they would worship you in truth and spirit and many would be brought into the kingdom. We pray, Father, that you would continue to use them in their various places throughout the world to boldly proclaim the truth, especially, Father, for those who would be in harm's way, that you would protect them and watch over them. Continue to add unto your kingdom many And we pray, Father, that you would use them for your glory and honor. We pray, Father, for those who need your comfort. We know that Christ is our comfort and that in him we have our hope. And we thank you, Father, for the comfort that comes from him through your spirit into our life, especially during difficult times. And we pray, Father, that you would strengthen those who need strength at this very moment. And Father, that you would continue to bring honor and glory to yourself in giving comfort to your people. We pray for those, Father, who are unable to be with us this day. You know their reasons and their needs. We pray, Father, that you would bless those who are away from us as they worship in other places, but that also you would bring them back to us quickly. We pray, Father, for those who need your healing hand upon their body. We know that you're the great physician able to strengthen and heal those in need, and we pray that your blessings would be upon them and that they would give you honor and praise for your goodness in their life. We pray, Father, for those who are not here due to their lack of concern to worship you as they ought to. Pray that you would stir their hearts and bring conviction about so that they would not forsake the assembling together of the brethren, and Father, that they would join us soon. Bless all that would be said according to your will this day to bring honor and glory to your name. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and we will read verses 16 and 17. Romans 1 beginning with verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jews first, and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. This morning I want to ask you the question, what is the gospel? I hope that you would be able to answer that question very clearly because from this pulpit every Sunday the gospel is preached. So my question is, do you understand the gospel? How can a person be saved if he doesn't hear the gospel and comprehend the gospel? How can you share the gospel, if you yourself do not know the gospel or understand it. There are many verses in the Bible regarding the gospel and what Jesus and the apostles preached in their day. We could say that the gospel can be condensed 
But the whole gospel is virtually the entire Bible in one sense, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. For the Bible is called what? Redemptive history. From Genesis to Revelation, we see how God has worked throughout history to save a people for himself. Now, Scripture speaks of the gospel in various ways. It is said to be the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of grace. It is also called the gospel of the glory of Christ and the gospel of the glory of God. So one preaches Christ, what does it mean? Well, at the very least, it means that the person of Jesus Christ is preached in his dual nature. What is his dual nature? That he is God and he is man. And that as man, he came to save people from their sin. So therefore, Christ's work is to be preached. What Christ has accomplished throughout his life, as well as what Christ has accomplished on the cross, that must be preached if it's the gospel. But it must also include his resurrection, his ascension, and his present work, even at this very moment as our mediator. In all that Christ has done and all that Christ does, the glory of God is shining brilliantly. That is why Christ must be lifted up. And as the scripture says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So preaching Christ must include all of these things as well as preaching the Holy Spirit of Christ that was sent by him. The work of the Spirit, of course, is to take the work of Christ to the person's soul. Who can apply it to the soul? Only the Holy Spirit. As we see quite clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, Paul says, And I beseech you, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellency of speech, or a wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So we see that Paul clearly proclaims that what he preached was by the power of the Spirit of God. It was not by persuasive words, but it was by the words of Scripture. So we see that Paul brilliantly presented the gospel as he proclaimed the truth throughout the nations. And Paul preached nothing as he says there, but Christ crucified. And in such a way that it demonstrated the power of the Holy Spirit, which means that he preached the gospel, which was a Trinitarian gospel. He preached the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the Father chose, that the Son redeemed, and that the Spirit applies the redemption work. The gospel, therefore, is not just about historical facts, so as what Christ accomplished. And clearly, we can give those historical facts, but the gospel also includes the Holy Spirit applying the gospel to the souls of human beings. Now, four truths concerning the gospel. First of all, the great news of the gospel is that the life of Jesus Christ earned us perfect righteousness that you and I could never have earned. Why? Because we were born sinners. So therefore we started off bad. And as sinners, there is no way we could earn perfect righteousness. So therefore it's the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ bringing about this redemption, this righteousness that we need. 
And as the Spirit of God works in our life, He accomplishes that. Second, the great news of the gospel is how the blood of Jesus Christ propitiated. Now, children, that word propitiate means the removal of God's wrath. And we know that Christ removed the wrath of God by taking it upon Himself. And how the Holy Spirit washes sinners of all of their sin in regeneration. Third, the great news of the gospel is not just that Christ was resurrected from the dead, how glorious that is, but that He lives today. That He lives in His people by His Spirit. That's the reason why they become new creations. And then fourthly, the great news of the gospel is not just it is a fact that Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, but at this very moment, Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, hearing our prayers and presenting them to the Father. Now with these truths as our introduction and in our mind, I want us to begin to look at these verses that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we might understand that which he preached, which was the gospel. And see if it has, first of all, invaded our life. As I mentioned just a moment ago, if the gospel has not invaded our life, then how in the world can we share the gospel with someone else? It must have done a work in our life. It must make us a new creation before we can go and call others to repentance and trusting in Christ. But then also, how do we present this gospel to others? We spent some time in our Sunday school hour this morning speaking about that. But first of all, the gospel begins with God. By the way, let me mention that we will only be looking at one point this morning, and then we will look at the three other points next week. The first point is that the gospel begins with God. The second point, which we will look at next week, is that you must deal with your problem, which is sin. The third point is that Christ is our Savior. And the fourth point is that we must call for a response to the gospel. So those are the four things that we will be looking at. So the first is that the gospel begins with God. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And we have to understand what it's talking about when it says it's the power of God. God is the one who came up with the gospel. Man never could have come up with such a glorious plan that God has presented to us in Scripture. But yet there's a big problem. People do not grasp God. So therefore, if you do not grasp God, how can you go forward? It's sad that most people have absolutely no biblical understanding of who God is in the Bible. They have, as the scripture talks about, a God of their own imagination. In other words, everybody knows that they're a God, but yet they have formed in their mind who God is. And what they formed in their mind is totally opposite to what the Scripture says concerning who God is. So if you don't have a biblical understanding of God, then you do not know God. There is a growing number of people who don't even believe in there is a God. And of course, that individual is called an atheist. And there's others who are agnostic, which means that they're not sure whether there is a God or not. Now, of course, from that word agnostic, we get the word ignoramus, and that's what they are. People uh, are ignoramus because they don't really know whether there is a God or not when God has clearly revealed Himself. There is no longer a strong belief, even in our nation, in God. I read in May, a report from May 23rd of this year, that only about a half of Americans say that they are certain that God exists. And it's been said that even in our county, Rankin County, that 80% of the people are unchurched. Now, why are 80% of the people in the center of the Bible Belt 
unchurched. Why do they not attend church? Well, if you don't believe in God, why would you attend church? See, that's the question you have to ask. See, they don't see that there is a God. And if they don't see that there is a God, they don't see that they are under the wrath of God. And that one day that they must stand before this holy God and give an account. So if they don't see that, there is no fear of God in their eyes. And if there's no fear of God in their eyes, and if they don't believe there is a God, therefore, why would they attend church and waste their time? That's the way they view it. And this is why I said earlier that the gospel is the entire Bible. We must begin in Genesis and present the gospel to them and the God of the Bible, who created all things, who governs all things, and is powerful, all-powerful over all things. That's the God that we must present to sinners. There are numerous arguments that you can give for the existence of God. But those arguments must come from Scripture. Look with me at Paul's argument in Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 24. Here, Paul was in Athens, and they had an inscription even on a statue with the various other statues that said, To the unknown God, and therefore the ones whom you worship without knowing Him, I proclaim to you. And that's what Paul says to him. And notice what he says, beginning in verse 24. God, who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their appointed, pre-appointed time and the boundaries of their habitation so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each of us. So we see that Paul clearly lays out a good example as far as presenting the gospel, presenting who God is. All men know deep down That there is a God. But what does Paul tell us? He tells us in Romans 1 and 2 that they suppress the truth. Now that word that is used there in the Greek for suppressing means they exert a great amount of energy. Like there's a spring and they are pushing as hard as they can down on that spring. And that spring is exerting its force back up. They are pressing as hard as they can against this truth that there is a God even though they deny the existence of God. So we must speak to their conscience. And we must point out to them this truth that deep inside them, they know that there is a God. They know that God is living. They know that God created them. We see that Paul says in Romans 2.14, why man rejects God. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature due to things in the law, these, although not having the law, are law unto themselves. See, God's law is written on the heart of all men. But what have they done with that? They have perverted that which they know is right. Children, did you know that you are just like Adam and Eve? When you do something wrong, you know deep down inside that that which you did is wrong. So what do you do? Well, you do just like one of my children did many years ago. It was around uh, Christmas time and we had silver bells. And, and of course, my wife did not want my children eating too many silver bells because the temptation is there to eat the whole bowl, Right? Well, my wife instructed them how many silver bells they could have one day. And one day she looked down and she saw some wrappers. And uh, 
We began to follow those wrappers, kind of like the story of Goldilocks following the breadcrumbs, found the wrappers and, and went around. And there was one of my children sitting there with chocolate all over her face. And mom asked her, have you been into silver bells? No, ma'am. Well, what was she doing? She was hiding. And not only was she hiding, she was lying. Because it was clear she'd been in the silver bells. And that's how Adam and Eve were. They knew that they had sinned against God. And we know when we've sinned against God. And when we sin against God, we hide. Just as parents represent God and children know that, they, they hide from their parents when they sin against them. Now, why? For God's law accuses them of their sinfulness. But yet they suppress it and they harden their heart and they hide. There is the Augustine argument also. I cannot be satisfied until I find my satisfaction in God. See, all human beings are searching for joy and and happiness. I mean, that's what we all want, right? We want peace and we want joy. Now, why is that the case? Why are men restless, as Augustine says? Why isn't it that he is content like an animal? This morning, as we do our normally normal Sunday morning routine, our dog knows that it's Sunday. He knows that it's a different routine. And he is so content, he goes over and he just lays on his mat, Content in life. Why aren't we like that? Why isn't man content in life? Why are we so restless? Why do we have a constant drive? Well, Augustine says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And he's so right. We must tell sinners that this is the case. As Paul says there in Acts chapter 17, verse 27, so that you should seek the Lord in hope that you might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. See, we must teach sinners about the God of the Bible who created man in his own image. If you ask them, the typical sinner, who God is to explain God to you, they will most likely say what? God is what? You know, love, right? That's what most people say. God is love. And that's about as far as the average sinner can go. Now, love is only one of God's attributes. As the Catechism states, what is God? God is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's who God is. And we must emphasize in all of those His what? His holiness. His holiness is His transcendent purity, which is what? His otherness. See, we must understand and we must tell others that God is not like us. He's other. He's completely different from us. See, I cannot overemphasize this point, especially in the day that we live in, that God is other. The scripture says what? He is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah makes it clearly known in chapter 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, and so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts, your thoughts. I mean, we run into that all the time, don't we? 
We think to ourselves, God, why did you allow that to happen? Why did you do that, God? Why did you allow that to come in my life? All we have to do is remember this. God has a purpose and that His thoughts are not our thoughts. And the other thing that we need to remember is that God always does that which is right. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me comfort. That whatever God does, He does that which is right. He never makes a mistake. And He controls all things. And He has a purpose behind every single thing that happens. Even that which we see as evil, He even has a purpose behind that. And that gives us wonderful comfort. Now most people don't understand how different God is from man. Most people view God as only some kind of superhuman being, thinking that God is like man, even though He's much greater and bigger than man. I don't, I don't know if that thought comes from the medieval or, or you know, even movies about these superhuman beings and, and there's those that are above that control the superhuman beings on earth and they're even a, a greater superhuman being. I don't know what put that in man's mind other than sin, but yet we think that God is like us and just greater and bigger, but that's not the case. Again, we must emphasize that God is not like us in any way. He is infinitely better for He is holy, holy, holy. That is the core of God's being. The core of our being is what? Sinful, sinful, sinful. Now, R.C. Sproul says, Holiness is the characteristic of God's nature that is at the very core of His being. Only as we encounter God in His holiness... Is it possible for us to see ourselves as we are? See, when we see the holiness of God, then we see the sinfulness of man. The view of God's presence in Isaiah 6, 1 through 4, leaves an individual with a deep sense of awe at the greatness of His majesty. To be indifferent is impossible for the Christian when confronted by the holiness of God, the practical life of the Christian flows from the vision of God's holiness. And we see that, as he says in Isaiah chapter 6. We see there in that chapter that even the holy angelic beings cover their face and they cover their feet before the presence of of God. These are angelic beings. These are holy beings. And these holy beings, because they are in front of the thrice holy God, cover their face and cover their feet before Him to show their reverence toward Him. And when Isaiah receives that vision, that vision when God evidently opened to heaven to where Isaiah could look into heaven and see the glory of God. I mean, remember, this is God's prophet, His holy servant. And when he sees this vision, he is utterly devastated. Look at what he says about himself. Woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, God's greatness, God's otherness, God's majesty was revealed to Isaiah. And what happened? He saw himself as coming apart, as falling apart, coming apart at the seams. And we must press the holiness 
of God upon sinners, so likewise that they might see themselves as falling apart, undone before a holy God. This holy God would consume you if you came into His presence as a sinner in your own filthy righteousness. And we must press that upon sinners. That man's righteousness is filthy rags before God. Remember when Moses wanted to see God? There in Exodus chapter 33. And what did God say to him? You cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live. The holiness of God would consume Moses if he saw his face. Hebrews 12, 29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. Now the imagery of fire arouses our feelings of of terror and dread. Because we know that fire can destroy and fire can reap havoc in in the worst way. I mean, we've seen that recently in Malawi. I mean, where... All that property and and hundreds of lives were destroyed. How sad it is to see the devastation. And this reality is revealed in how powerful God is. Fire as one of God's manifestations may lead us only to think of His wrath and His fury. And it is aspect of His manifestation. God's judgment and His condemnation, the Scripture tells us, is with fire. And that should cause fear in us. But fire also carries with it not only this punitive aspect of God's will, but it also provides other views of God. It provides us with the thought of His warmth for those who are cold and weary as well as the thought of purification. His Shekinah glory cannot abide with sin, but yet it consumes it due to its purity. And our teaching must stress that only those that are in Christ can take hope in the reality that Christ has bore the fire, the wrath of God, and purified His people by His Spirit, giving us access into the brilliant glory of God so that there is no longer any fear, but we can come boldly to the throne of God because of the work of Christ. But lost sinners, before God are falling apart, you know that. You have people that work with you that come and they they share their life story with you and they're falling apart at the seams. So therefore you have the opportunity to share with them so that they might see that they realize that they need a Savior so that they might come into the presence of God who is able to put them back together in His fellowship. They must be told that they have no righteousness of their own. That their righteousness, all that they do, all the good things that they do are unacceptable because it's viewed by God as filthy rags because He's a holy God and He cannot accept such from man. And until a person sees himself in that condition, he will not flee to Christ as his only hope. So we must drive home the purity of God to get to this point and teach sinners that God is perfect, flawless, that He is light, that He is beauty, that He is splendor, that He is glorious. And this is the burning purity of God. John confirms that in 1 John 1.5 when he says, God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. And this is another quality of God that is is completely different from man. For man is full of darkness, not light, full of darkness. 
Romans 1.21 says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, that's the state of lost man. Yes, God is also goodness and, and love but only in the context of His holiness and purity. If you think the goodness and love as a kind of human characteristic, then you'll get it all wrong. No, it must be based upon the Scriptures. This is why so many misunderstand the love and goodness of God. Lost man does not understand true love. He talks about love all the time, but he doesn't understand agape, unconditional love. What does the Bible mean when it says that God is love? Well, again, it's it's rooted in the Trinity, a mutual Perfect love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Perfect love in the Trinity. And God manifested His love in the way that relates to His creatures. Because His love is inherent in Him. He's self-existent, self-sufficient. He needs no one. He didn't need to create us. God chose to create you and me. But He didn't need us, and He still doesn't need us, because He's self-sufficient. So we must explain that God does not need anyone in Himself outside the Trinity, because there's perfect communion and love within the Trinity. So the purpose of the Gospel isn't so that you will come to love God, so that we might add something to God in some way. See, that's impossible. You cannot add anything to God. Therefore, the purpose of the gospel is to reveal God's love for His own people. It's our task to give people a view of a big God and a small man. I think there's a book by that title, Big God and Small Man. I know there's a book by when God, when people are big and God is small, but I think there's also a book, I may be wrong, entitled Big God, Small Man. If there's not, I gave you a good title, Dirk, that you can write a book about. Now, even many Christians still have a view of a small God. And it's our task to give them a big view of God. How do you give people a big view of God? Well, months ago I mentioned to you that we had a book back in the book room, The Attributes of God, and, and you could pick up a copy. I think we still have those copies back there. Pick up a copy and read about the attributes of God, who He is His attributes, so that you might have a bigger view of God. Teaching people His attributes helps them to see the great knowledge of who God is. Now there's another problem. Many who say that they believe in God don't think that God is a personal God. That that God is personally interested in them. They say, God isn't interested in me, so therefore, why should I be interested in Him? That's their mindset. They say, I know God created all things. I know God created me. But what does He have to do with my life now? Well, we must explain to them that God, first of all, created them, what? In His own image. And why did God create them in His own image? Well, the reason why God created them in His own image 
It's so that they might have communion with this living God. Again, He chose to have fellowship with man. Man didn't choose to have fellowship with Him. And we know from what Scripture says that after God had made man, that man disobeyed God, did his own thing, trying to be God, and therefore sinned. And sin keeps man from having fellowship with this God, this God that he needs to have fellowship with. But the problem is what? Man loves his sin. He loves his sin so much that he's unwilling to give up his sin to have fellowship with God. He's satisfied. It's like what John Piper says in his book, uh, Waste. Wasted life. I can't. I went blank on the title of it. Why waste your life or something like that? He, he's satisfied. Well, I think he's quoting C.S. Lewis. Matter of fact, he's satisfied making mud pies after the rain. Satisfied with that when he could be down at Destin on the beach having a glorious time there in the waves. But he's satisfied, right? And that's how man is. He's satisfied with his sin. When he could have a glorious communion, fellowship with the living God. Now why is that? Because his mind's darkened. Because he's foolish. I mean, if someone offered you a million dollar trip, and you said, well, I'd just rather stay at home and watch TV, you'd call him a fool, wouldn't you? What do you call a person that's offered a relationship with God and rather just stay in his sin? A greater fool. See, God, man without God, in one sense, is subhuman. For he hasn't received the heart of humanity, which is God himself, God's image. See, this is the new heart that Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hebrews speaks of. In Ezekiel 26, 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And Hebrews repeats that in 8.10. For this is the new covenant that I made with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, God is in the business of saving His people from their sin. God wants to seek people to seek Him. God wants people to find Him. He is not far from mankind. Remember what Paul said there. In Acts chapter 17, For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that this divine nature is like gold and silver or rock, something shaped by art or man's division devices. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlived, but now commands all men everywhere to what? To repent. He calls all men to repent. So God created man to have fellowship with Him, and man will not have true peace and satisfaction until that occurs. Man is always looking 
for happiness in all the wrong places. Everywhere but God. He thinks he can find happiness in wealth. He thinks he can find happiness in sex. He thinks he can find happiness in his job. No, it won't happen. The only time he will be able to find happiness is when he has a living relationship with the true and living God. That's what Paul is saying. And God is interested in His creatures. And He has taken great measure to bring them to Him. That's why we have John 3.16 in the Scriptures. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God took the initiative. Man did not take the initiative. And this is the God who must explain to lost sinners that we must remember that the power of the message lies in the power of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about conversion. So we, as Christians, must know what this book says. If we don't know what this book says, we cannot tell others what this book says. We must give ourselves to the study of the Word of God so that we might be able to be witnesses to those who are lost, knowing that God is the author of the gospel. And we must know the Scriptures, and we must use the Scriptures to point people to the God of the Bible. The gospel must begin with the focus on God, on Yahweh, for He is the author of the gospel. Let me close by asking you, do you really know this God which I have spoken of this morning? Have you come to a personal relationship in your life with Him You know that you have a personal relationship in your life because there was a time in your life when you saw that you were a lost sinner headed for hell, that you were falling apart, coming apart at the scene, that you were totally hopeless and you cried out to this God and looked to Jesus Christ and repented of your sins and you trusted in Christ and Christ alone. Has there been a time in your life when that has happened? Have you ever come to the point to see that you deserved an everlasting hell because you were a sinner who had sinned against the holy God? That you had violated God's commandments? That you had broken every single one of them? Remember, we saw that in Matthew chapter 5 as we went through the Sermon on the Mount. You say, well, I've never murdered anybody. What did Jesus say? If you have hated them, you've murdered them. You said, I've never committed adultery. If you've lusted after a woman, you have committed adultery. So on and on I could go. So you've broken every single one of them, and you realize that you have broken every single commandment. Has your heart ever been broken over your sin to where you cried out to God in true repentance? mourned over your sin like King David mourned over his sin by saying, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sins are always before me against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Have you ever come to the point like that, like that King David did? Have you looked to Jesus Christ alone as your only hope? As Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. My prayer is that no one would leave this place today without knowing Absolutely knowing that you are right with the living God. As the hymn writer says, Come ye sinner, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready waits to save you. Full of pity, love, and power. 
He is able, he is able, he is willing doubt no more. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, may your spirit Take these truths and drive them into our heart so that we might understand who the living God is. So that we might reverence Him, worship Him, learn of Him, and teach others of Him. Father, we know that we live in a world full of lost sinners. And you have given us the gospel light. You have called us to be ambassadors of Christ, to go forth into the nations and preach the gospel. May we be faithful, Father, to this task. May no one in this place, Father, Continue to be deceived. Continue to be ignorant. Continue to love their sin. Set them free from their sin. And draw them to Christ. Be pleased, Father, to do that by Your Spirit, which only can be done by Your Spirit, for Your glory and honor. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.